Well, we're going to continue our study of the attributes of God. This week we're in chapter 33. The title of the chapter is The Purpose of Creation. Let me pray for us and over us again, and then we'll dive in here. Father, we thank you for your tender mercy and care over all creation, and especially your kindness to us, your people. We pray, Father, in light of your steadfast love and in light of the promises that you have made to us and your desire that we know you and see something of your glory, we pray in light of this that you would take the next several minutes and teach us, remind us of your, your mighty power, Remind us of our proper place in your presence and help us, Lord, to fix you as much as we are able as creatures to fix you and, and allow you your proper place in our hearts and our affections and our minds. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Two weeks ago, we considered the Bible's teaching about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being the creator of all things. And we might think, especially those of us who've been even around Christianity for a long period of time, we might think that a doctrine like God as creator is something that sort of goes without saying. Why are we talking about this? Is this not child's, child's play? Uh, but the, the reality is, if you've paid much attention to the world, that if you believe what the Bible teaches about God as our Creator, uh, you are in the super minority of people on planet Earth. If you believe that God created the world in the space of six days, as our confession states it, uh, you're in the minority. That 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 is no longer something that the the broad majority of the world takes uh, for granted. That's something that the broad majority of the world has cast aside. And so it is something that we need to come back to and reaffirm and, and just remind ourselves that we, we, have not, we have not advanced to such a stage in our theological uh, studies that we can take for granted such statements like that, such truths like that, or, or th that our minds have, have somehow risen above the need to be reminded of such things. God is the Creator. Of everything. We see in God's Word, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then we see it reiterated in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. God is the Creator. Father, Son, and Spirit, Creator. Now, last week we took the doctrine of God's creatorship and God's sovereignty and God's power to the next step, showing that not only did God create in the beginning, but that since that moment in the beginning... And from the beginning, He has continually sustained 
everything that he created in its existence by his own mighty power. Speaking specifically of the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son, Paul says in Colossians 1.17, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. In Hebrews 1.3, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Both of those verbs hold together, and He upholds. Both of those are in a, in a present tense form. That means right now, ongoing, and, and if I'm not mistaken, the Hebrew... The word in Hebrews 1.3 is a participle, which we could read with an ing. He is upholding the universe by the word of His power. Amen. In each sequential step of time, every living being in heaven and on earth, physically alive or even alive only as an eternal soul, is receiving its living principle from the active impartation of the life of God. He upholds and sustains the life of every single thing in existence and even inanimate objects. He sustains them in their, their, their makeup, their, their structure, so that they continue to exist. God is, as we have seen in the past, infinite and immutable. And so as God has given life from the beginning of creation to every living thing, nonstop, without fail, day and night, he himself is not diminished in the least. That, that, that communication of life by his power to uphold and sustain every living thing from the beginning, every moment of time until now, has not reduced God in the least. It's, it's, it's rendered no alteration to him whatsoever. And it ought to give us great comfort when we go back to those texts like Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1.3. It ought to give us great comfort that the Son of God, who made an actual, effectual purifications for our sins by His death on the cross, that Son is the one who is upholding and sustaining all things, all creation, and is guiding it in every movement of its, of its life and continuation, and will do so until the very end. He's the one who's going to bring it to its its climactic conclusion. He's the one before whom all creatures are going to stand and be judged. That's the one who also made purification for our sins, who sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's good news for us. The one who's in control is our elder brother. He's our friend. He's on our side. He came after us. He's, our, he's the, the, the groom of the bride. He pursued us. That's the one who's in control. Well, we move on now to consider... The purpose of all things, the purpose of creation. And now I'll, I'll pick up the reading in the workbook there. We have learned from the scripture that God is the creator, sustainer, and rightful owner of his creation. It now follows that we consider the purpose for which he created all things. If God was under no obligation to create the universe, and if he did not need the universe to fill some void in his existence, then what was and is the divine purpose behind the creation and continued existence of man. The scriptures boldly and unapologetically declare creation's purpose to be the glory and good pleasure of God. So let me, let me restate the question, and I'll, I'll repeat this several times as we walk through this. Here's the question, what was and is, so from eternity in creation, and then moving through the sustaining of all things, what was and what is right now, the divine purpose 
behind the creation and the continued existence of man. Why? Why create? Why continue? Why uphold? We, we were speaking to God. God, why have you done this? And why have you continued to do this? We read last week from Job 34, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. It, it would be nothing for God to in a moment just say, I'm done. And he would not be changed in the least. It would not alter him. Adam was formed from dust and then God breathed life into him. Apart from that breath, Adam would have just been dust. And if God should so desire to pull back that life, to take it back, everything would return back to lifeless dust. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl would return back to that lifeless state. It would be so simple for God to do this. Nothing, no effort whatsoever. Now if we couple that with some other texts which describe God's perspective on mankind, it, it, it drives the question home even further. Genesis 8.21 says, The intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Psalm 14.2 and 3 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Romans 9.22 says that God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath. So we ask, why? Why is He doing it? What's the, what's the purpose? He's declared the end from the beginning. Our confession says He hath decreed in Himself freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever come to pass. So the state of mankind, the, the, the place that we found ourselves in is no surprise to God. It's a part of His eternal decree. Why? What was and is the divine purpose behind the creation and continued existence of man? Well, we start to answer that question by considering another foundational truth about the nature of God, and that is that He is the God of all fullness. So this is not the answer, but it's sort of going to move us to the answer. The God of all fullness. And I'll read again here. He says, One of the most awe-inspiring and humbling truths about God is that He is absolutely free from any need or dependence. His existence, the fulfillment of His will, and His happiness and good pleasure do not depend upon anyone or anything outside of Himself. As we learned in chapter 11, He is the only being who is truly self-existent, self-sustaining, self-sufficient, independent, and free. You think you're free, you're not free. Every one of us in here is either a slave to sin or a slave to God. We're not free beings. God is the only truly free being. He says all other beings derive their life and blessedness from God. But all that is necessary for God's existence and perfect happiness is found in Himself. If God should withdraw His breath from every created thing, He would still be perfectly happy. Perfectly, infinitely holy and wise and blessed. He would be who He has always been. To even suggest that God made man because he was lonely or incomplete is absurd and even blasphemous. Creation is not the result of some lack in God, but the result of his fullness or the, or the overflow of his abundance. So here he, he goes ahead and gives us some wrong answers to the question. 
What was and is the divine purpose behind the creation and continued existence of man? Well, it's not because God was lonely or incomplete. That's not the answer. God, there He was in eternity, twiddling His thumbs, saying, I wish I had somebody to talk to. No, that's not the answer. It's not because He had any need or dependence on creation. It's not because His existence depended on it. It's not because the fulfillment of His will depended on it. It's not because His happiness or good pleasure depended on it. These, these answers, because of who God is, as He says, are absurd and even blasphemous. The, these types of answers assert things or imply things about God that are not true. If you ever hear anybody say these types of things, you, you know you're talking to somebody or you're dealing with someone who's not really thought very deeply about what the Bible teaches about God. Turn with me to Psalm 36.9. The first reference that he gives us. Psalm 36.9. These... These first two verses that he gives us, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, are, are just asserting God's self-existence and self-sufficiency. Psalm 36, 9, speaking of God, or, or actually to God, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So David is asserting that with God is the fountain or the source of life. Everything comes from God. He Himself is the source of all life because as we learn elsewhere, He is life itself. So, think about it. Surely, we, we, we couldn't say that God created the world and He continues to sustain the world so that everything that He created and is sustaining would work backwards to give Him life or, or sustain Him. Obviously, you see, that's absurd. It doesn't make any sense. If He needed creation, the things that He has created, to have life, well, then creation would have to exist before Him and give Him life so that He could exist. The creation would then not be creation. Creation would be God and God would be a creature. It, it turns the entire uh, reality on its head. It cannot be. He is the fountain of life. Turn now to the New Testament, John 5, 26. John 5.26, this is Christ Himself speaking. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Just as we saw with creation and the sustaining of creation, so also we see this life-giving power or this concept of the fountain of life is traced back to the entirety of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father is life. The Son is life. The Spirit is the life of God. They, they are one in their essence. And again, since this is true, 
And we can't ever fall into the trap of thinking that God created and sustains creation in order that He might have life or, or satisfy any need of His because He has no need. He depends on nothing, not God, in order to be God. The note there says that God is life in Himself and is the fountain of life and light, that is wisdom, for all living creatures. He is not dependent upon another. All things are dependent upon Him. It seems so basic. Yet, yet how, how easy is it to step off of this foundation when we go into other doctrines and scriptures we've talked about before? Number two takes us to back to Acts chapter 17. So let's turn there and we'll read this sermon of Paul's again. Paul's preaching here to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens. We've been talking about worldly wisdom in, in the mornings. This would have been the, the pinnacle of or center of philosophy and worldly wisdom in the world. And Paul stands there and he preaches to them about the self-sufficiency of God and His relationship to creation. I'll read verses 22 to 31. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives life to all mankind, or gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now He points out several truths here. From verse 24 we see this assertion, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. God is not in need of any dwelling place made by man. When God would prescribe the construction of the tabernacle and then later the temple under the old covenant, it was not out of a need that He had. He wasn't saying it's hot out here, I need some shade. Or it's rainy out here, I need a covering. I need a place to go to be warm or to cool off. Even after the, the construction of the temple, you know that Solomon prayed these words, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house 
that I have built. Think about those words that Solomon had to say, this house that I have built. Solomon and, and, and his workers, they got together. They, they built this edifice, this place. And then he has to stop and say, God, you think God's going to just, this is his house now that he's going to come in and live here? He doesn't need this. He created me. He created all of us. We all got together and put together this thing, stacked these stones on top of another. We made it beautiful. Is God really going to dwell in this place? And he says that the heaven of heavens cannot contain God. God was not coming to seclude himself in a man-made structure. The highest heaven, I take that to be all creation, cannot contain God. He's not, he's not um, inside his creation as if it were a bubble and he, he's, he's secluded to it in any way. He's beyond, outside transcending his creation. Though God did manifest his special presence and power in the midst of his people... That never meant that the divine essence actually resided there to the exclusion of all other places. Now that's important. That actually gives us a little bit of a clue uh, or a, a, a hint as we begin to articulate our Christology. Did Christ not refer to His body as the temple? Well, th then we, we understand that when, when the Son of God comes in flesh and the fullness of the deity is is pleased to dwell bodily in Christ, that doesn't mean that the divine essence was somehow uh, secluded to that human body, that, that, that the eternal Son no longer filled heaven and earth. No, He always continued to be where He was. When we, when we sing things like, He left His Father's throne above, that's, that's our human articulation of His, His condescension, His humiliation. We're not really saying the divine Son literally left His place of power and glory. No, He continued to be the eternal Son, filling all things, and also was found there in human form. Verse 25 says, God is not served by human hands as though he had need. The note there says that that first declaration proves that God has no need, that man should build him a temple since he himself made the universe and even it cannot contain him. The second declaration proves that God's command for us to serve him is not the result of need on his part. It is, it is an act of grace. He grants us the privilege of knowing him, serving him, and being the special objects of his favor. The Proverbs talk about the glory of the king being in the multitude of his people. You think about earthly kings. What is the great glory? That he reigns over a mighty empire. That he has hundreds of thousands, if not millions of subjects under him. And even in his court, he may have those who serve him night and day. A great and mighty king has people who constantly wait on every need of his. Rich and powerful people, even in our own nation, they have people who do everything for them. But all of that is just a testimony to the fact that they have all these needs. Right? I, I have people who, who go and get me food whenever I need it. They, they drop grapes in my mouth. or They, they fan me with a palm branch. Or they hold a, a turkey leg over and I take a bite whenever I want. Oh, oh, you have all these needs, is what you're saying. You have to eat, and you're, you get hot, and you need to be fanned. I, well, I have a chauffeur who drives me everywhere. Oh, oh you, have to, you have to move from place to place? It's just showing, that it, it's a testimony to their weakness, that they, they are finite creatures. God is not like that in any way. He has no need. 
We serve Him, and it is a blessing to us. It's not to display some sort of need in Him. So what do we conclude? With regard to the question, what was and is the divine purpose behind the creation and the continued existence of man? Well, we've seen God is independent. He's self-existent. He's self-sufficient. That God is the one who gives life to all things. Negatively, He needs nothing, derives nothing from His creatures. So the answer cannot be, as we said at the beginning, it cannot be that He created all things and He sustains all things so that He can get something from us. That cannot be the answer. So then, what is the answer? Well, that takes us to the second main heading, the glory of God. If God did not create the universe because of some need, then what was His purpose? Why did God create all things? The Scriptures teach us that God created everything for His own good pleasure and glory. That is, to manifest His greatness and to receive from His creation the honor and worship that is due Him. This may sound strange or even a bit self-centered or selfish on God's part, but nothing could be further from the truth. Consider these two evidences. First, God is worthy to take the highest place above His creation. And He is worthy to be the object of all our thoughts, activities, and worship. For Him to deny Himself first place above us would be for Him to deny that He is God. Second, I missed a word here. Second, the greatest good God could ever do for us and the greatest kindness He could ever show us would be to direct all things so that His greatness might be fully displayed before us. If God is of infinite worth, beauty, and majesty, then the most valuable, beautiful, and majestic gift He could ever give us would be to show us His glory. Now, He said there, it sounds like God is self-centered and selfish. Nothing could be further from the truth, and we know what He means, but well, with regard to self-centeredness, God really is God-centered. That's, that's true. He is focused on Himself his own purposes, his own desires. And like he went on to say, that's a good thing. For us, it would be negative because we're not God. But for God to be God-centered, to be, to be self-centered, that is the best thing he could ever do. The glory of God is the simple and yet infinite fullness of perfection. That is God himself. And God is not only our chief good, he is the chief good of every created thing. So to be able to see just some small part of His glory, and to be able to do something that would reflect that glory in, in even a tiny way, that is the chief end of all creation. That's why we exist. It's good for us. We could say God is self-centered for our good. God is selfish for us. It benefits us that He is this way. Let's turn to Romans eleven thirty six. Romans eleven thirty six. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen.
Now in the workbook, he breaks this up into four parts. First, from Him, speaking of God, from Him are all things. He says, God is the source of creation and the fountain of all life. We read Psalm 36, 9. Creation owes its very existence to God. And apart from Him, there would be nothing. Man is not the product of some mindless evolutionary process that he should live without purpose, nor is he the source of his own existence that he should live for himself. Rather, he is the work of God that he should live for his glory. This is the summary of what we saw two weeks ago with, of referring to God as creator. All things come from God. From Him, excuse me, are all things. Or, yeah, from Him are all things. Then secondly, through Him are all things. He says, God is the agent through which all things were created and are sustained. If God were to turn away from His creation for one moment, all would become chaos. And, and that doesn't just mean when we hear chaos, we, we think, you know, the traffic lights will start blinking and people are going to crash their cars and people will be looting and robbing. No, it, it would be literally nothing, formless and void nothing, if God were to turn away. But through His unhindered sovereignty, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite power, He sustains all things and directs them molecules, men, and galaxies to the great end for which they were created, the glory of God. And, and this sort of encapsulates what we saw last week. All things exist and continue to exist through God's sustaining power. Through Him are all things. And notice the language here is not just simply uh, a past tense. From Him were all things. Through Him were all things. But it, it's, it's presently. Through Him are all things. And then we come to this next step, to Him are all things. To Him. In this simple phrase is found the meaning of existence. God created all things and works in all things for His good pleasure and glory. To manifest His greatness and receive from us the honor and worship that are due Him. All things are to God, it says, or unto God. It's a preposition of direction. The idea is that their existence and their maintenance are toward God or, or have a, a Godward purpose. Everything is aimed at God. All creation, aimed at the glory of God, has this one focal point that it's all driving toward. To Him are all things. And that's why the verse then, or Paul sort of brings this doxology to a climax. To Him be glory forever. Amen. The only proper response to the greatness of God is to esteem Him above all things and to give Him the highest honor, adoration, and praise. There is an important Latin phrase used in theology to describe this truth. Soli Deo Gloria. Which means, to God alone be the glory. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. When we come to these next several passages, we're taking all of that truth and we're funneling it once again toward the Son, the second person of the Trinity. We're considering the Son Himself. He says in Colossians 1.16 is found a passage of Scripture that's very similar to Romans 11.36. 
but it speaks specifically about the Son of God. Let's read it. For by Him, that is the Son, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Now he breaks this verse, or the the main point of this verse, up into two sections. The first, all things have been created by Him and through Him. And he says, the Father is the source of all things. References Romans 11.36, which we just saw. But He has created all things through the Son. John 1.3, Hebrews 1.2, we've read those. Who is the mediator between the Father and creation. Through the Son, the Father created all things, reveals Himself to His creation, reconciled the creation to Himself, rules creation, and will one day judge creation. Now, He gave there four Scripture references. I want you to just just listen to those. I'll restate what He just said, and I'll read the, the reference with it. Through the Son, the Father created all things reveals Himself to His creation. John 1.18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Through the Son, the Father reconciled the creation to Himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. Through the Son, the Father rules creation. Philippians 2.9-11, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And through the Son, the Father will one day judge creation. John 5.22, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. We even saw it in Acts uh, earlier, He will judge, a man, judge the world in righteousness by a man. Christ will be the judge and the standard of all judgment. Again, I say, the glory of God is the simple and infinite fullness of perfection that is God Himself. And all of this is by the Father's will exhibited to us through the Son, Jesus Christ. So that's the first part. All things have been created by Him and through Him. And then all things have been created for Him. Now that word for is the same preposition that was used in Romans 11.36. To Him. Same word, for Him or to Him. It's all aimed at Him. He says, it's no contradiction to say that all things have been created for the glory and good pleasure of both the Father and the Son. According to the Scriptures, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand, John 3.35. And it is the Father's will that all honor the Son as they honor Him, John 5.23. Therefore, everything said in Romans 11.36 about the purpose of creation may be applied to the Son. All creation in all realms has one great and final purpose, and that is the glory of God. And we could say the glory of God is the glory of the Son. The glory of the Son is the glory of God. 
2 Corinthians 4, 6 tells us the glory of God shines in the face of Jesus Christ. So then, what was and is the divine purpose behind the creation and continued existence of man? Why? Why create? Why go on? Why keep it moving? The answer is for God's glory. Why do you exist for God's glory? Your children, if I asked you who made you, you would say, God made me. And if I said, what else did God make? You would say, God made all things. And if I said, well, why did God make you in all things? You would say, for His own glory. That's why everything exists. That's where we start our theology. But we can also keep in mind that we glorify God when we glorify Jesus Christ. When we seek the glory of God, when we seek the glory of Christ, when we proclaim Christ, His person and His works, and the gospel of that he, the work that He has accomplished for our sake and our salvation, we are telling of the glory of God. That is the chief display of God's glory, is what Christ has done. We glorify God when we glorify the Son. Let's close in prayer.